Well, today begins this journey of Lent, which is something I didn't grow up with at all. So if you're sitting here going, I don't know what they're talking about, like welcome to good company. It's literally 40 days except for Sundays, which moves to the season of um, Easter. And I appreciate seasons very much because what it also means is we're moving out of a season of winter. Can I get an amen? Lent means to lengthen. The day lengthens itself, that we begin to see more sun. We begin to see things that were planted in the earth that are beginning to grow in the earth. Start. We maybe don't see what's happening, but, but life and things are beginning to happen. And that we move together in this grounded way in which we experience and hope to experience new life. Traditionally, throughout the church, it's been a season in which we do some examination. We kind of look at who we are as humans and what does it mean to be human. One of my favorite um, poets, Patrick Atuma, says it this way, that, that Lent is a way in which we say hello to being human. It's actually a thing I repeat all the time. Not too long ago, my daughter and I went to a trampoline park because that's where she wanted to go on our date night. I was super excited. Um, um, we went, and, you know, I, I just barely kept up. I didn't keep up with her at all, you know, but came home, and there was, like, scars on my knees from falling on trampolines. And I kind of look at those scars, and I just say, like, say hello to being human. You know, those scars, part of that humanness, those scars when I was young used to kind of go away in two to three days. And the older I get, it seems like the longer they seem to sit on my body and remind me of my humanness, our frailty our vulnerability, our flesh, and also our beauty. So welcome to a season in which we say hello to being human and we look at this passage from Genesis. This is a story that teaches us so much about what does it mean to be human, to carry scars, to live with desire and longing. What does it say about our relationships with one another, with nature, with God, with the voices inside our souls that are speaking? And so the Genesis story starts before this passage, with the very beginning, and it sounds so different than this chapter, and it starts with this very poetic, beautiful way in which God is creating, separating things and creating things, and through the separation keeps creating and creating, and you know how it goes. Every time God creates in the first chapter of Genesis, God says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And so we are anchored in the very story, from the very beginning of the story of God to its very end in one thing, this goodness. That there is goodness to the story. There is goodness to this creation. There is goodness into who we are and who we were created to be. It's how it all begins. It's how it all ends. It's what holds the tension we find ourselves in right now. And so the story of creation starts with this goodness and this reminder and repetition of goodness. And then it turns into chapter two where we kind of pick it up here and see that there's this There's this other kind of story of creation as well that goes side by side about what this whole thing is about. And today I want to do something a little bit different because there is so much loaded material in this passage 
that I kind of just want to go through the passage a little bit and just ask a lot of questions. And as a friend just reminded me, try to ask good questions that probably don't have answers exactly to them. And so I want to move through, what do we see kind of from this, from this anchoring of goodness as we move into this chapter? What is it telling us about what it means to be good? What does it mean to be human in this good and beautiful creation? So verse 15 starts with this in chapter 2. And then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall, you shall die. God took the man, took him, and put him in the garden, the garden of delight. It's this idea of like God kind of almost like dropping, planting a seed, planting this human, this of the earth, of hummus, Adam meaning earth meaning dirt, meaning hummus, this, this fertile ground. It's like planting a seed in the very center of this creation and puts it in this garden of delight with one command, that you may, eat of ev- that you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat it you shall die." Quick question that we're going to ask that I'm not going to answer is why would God put this other tree in there if he didn't want us to eat it, right? It's like saying, you know, hey kids, whatever you do, just like let's stay away from sugar, but I did get a box of donuts and they are delicious. And I'm going to set them right in the middle of the table just to kind of build your ability not to do it. Don't eat the marshmallow, right? What is God up to? Placing this tree right in the middle and then saying don't do it. The passage goes on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals that the Lord had made. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. When we talk about the serpent in the garden, some of our th- first thoughts are, oh, okay, Satan shows up on the scene pretty early. Here he is to mess everything up. The problem is, is that in the Hebrew text and understanding this one is that this idea of Satan isn't like totally flushed out and created yet. This is just... A serpent. And what is weird about this serpent? A couple of things. This serpent talks. <laughs> right? Like that's, that's strange. We only have one other talking animal, an ass, and a later in, or a donkey later in um, Scripture, sorry. Um, and that's the only other talking animal we see, but we see this serpent that, that is talking for some reason. And, and then this serpent gets cursed later in life, and I think this is interesting. The serpent gets cursed later in life, and the serpent can't, one of the curse for it is that it can't walk around anymore, but it has to crawl in its belly. So what was it doing before it was cursed? I don't know, right? Like, so there's this interesting wild creature, this serpent, that is more crafty. As some commentaries talk about this word crafty is almost the exact same word that we see in Hebrew when it talks about nakedness. They almost sound the exact same. There's this craftiness and this nakedness, which is one of the central points of this whole story. The nakedness, they saw that they were naked. They were afraid that they were naked. This crafty, this, this nakedness, this to what, it, what this kind of this creature, this beastly creature is all about. And so this 
potentially walking, naked, crafty, serpent, not Satan thing comes to the woman. They have a relationship. Don't know when they hung out, but it seems like they know each other. They relate to each other. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Did God say? Some of the beautiful commentary on this um, comes from a theologian, Martin Solomon, who who talks about this idea of, um, in the Hebrew, how it says, did God say? Did, did God really say that? Like, what, what did God really say? Questioning literally the voice of this command that was given at the beginning of their creation to eat of this fruit, but not of this one. Did God really say it? So similar to a passage um, that we read usually going into Lent, which is Jesus in the desert. Jesus goes into the desert and is alone for 40 days, which we kind of get this idea of Lent from, this, this journey through this desert, trying to hear the voice of God and hear it clearly. And in that one, we have this, this Satan, this devil character that comes in and starts to kind of question, but what did God really say? Doesn't it say in Scripture, didn't God say this? And three times questions Jesus, questioning this voice that you should not trust this creator this authority in your life. Did God really say that? I think of all the times throughout school where you're just trying to get around like the loopholes, like what did our teacher really say? We just, as humans, we kind of, we feel that, that, that longing to be like, can we get it word by word? And some of law gets created out of this where it's just like, let's get down and try to get the words as specific and as tight as possible. But what happens is we often lose relationship from that. Did God really say you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the tree. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. What's wrong with Eve's, the first one's response? You shall not touch it or you shall die. It's not what God said. That's not in the command. Somehow that got added on. So somehow this, this, this law, this command, this protection, however you want to see it, it gets added on. There's a great teaching of the idea of that maybe, that, like where did Eve learn this adding on to, yeah, you can't touch it or you're going to die. You can't get, you know, where did she add on to the law a little bit? And most um, rabbinic teachings kind of blame Adam for kind of like, here's what God said about the situation and um, listen, listen to this. And so they kind of add on to this. I think about this in our life all the time. What do we do with good laws and rules at times? We're like, okay, that's good. That kind of protects me. That gives away an an ethic and a way in which I'm supposed to live. But I'm so scared of doing it, so I'm just going to add more to it. So she adds on to this whole law. She adds on to this restriction. And in some ways begins to lose the very voice of God, which seems like the serpent is all about. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. This idea of being our eyes being open. 
Think of the first time that you kind of lost some of your um, naivete, this, this, uh, this innocence of the world. When eyes are open. It's both a gaining of information about, oh, that's what this is about, and there's such a loss in it too. As a parent, it's really hard to see kids' eyes being opened sometimes because I just long to protect them for it. But I also know if I just protect them from all of it, it's not going to work. What is this eye-opening about? You will be like God, the serpent says. The problem with that statement is if when we look in Genesis, that these humans, both man and woman, are already created in the image and the likeness of God. They're already like God. Different, but share the likeness in the image of it. And so there's a slight lie of not knowing actually who you are, but saying who you are is actually out there if you can just grasp it and hold it and bring it, bring it into yourself. So the woman then saw the tree that was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree that was desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. In reaching out to take this forbidden fruit, Eve had become an emblem of human desire to embrace the world, to ingest experience without restraint. The knowledge she sought was thus both intellectual, it was sensual as well as like delight to taste something that just looked so good, but it was also just a desire for the intellectual for more. Eve was striving to achieve blessing, to gain a fuller experience of life in its entirety. The desire may be even good. Does she reach, does he reach beyond their limits? What do we do with the desires that lay deep within us that are good to pursue, to grab, to taste the fruit? But what do we do also when we believe the lie that we're just not enough, we don't have enough, unless we can just grasp more and more and more? If we look at the climate of our world, if we look at some of the situations of our world, it's kind of this same longing to just keep grasping and pulling in more and more. Then their eyes were both open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from his presence. Their eyes are open, and they see this nakedness. This nakedness leads to shame, this shame leads to hiding. This hiding leads to separation and a fear of God's presence. Nakedness leads to shame. Shame leads to hiding. Hiding leads to separation and a fear of God's presence. Karen Armstrong, um, writer, writes it this way. The old intimacy with the divine is broken. For Adam and Eve hid from God when he appeared in the evening of the garden Neither would take responsibility for their sin, but projected their guilt onto others. As the passage goes on, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. 
Sin is thus shown as the dissolving of community, of pointing the fig- finger at another. In its pre- it is presented as the opposite of wholeness and integrity. Sin fragments the soul so that human beings are no longer comfortable with their own bodies but try to hide their nakedness. This fragmentation can only spread to a disillusion and to infect the entire environment. Today, we are not always comfortable with a virtue that consists entirely of obedience. It seems to be a denial. Obedience seems to be a denial of our human autonomy, our choice, but an unworthy subservient to an external authority. Perhaps we can see the sin of Adam and Eve as a refusal to accept the nature of things. Eve sought blessing, but Genesis teaches us This is not something that we can grab for ourselves without heed of consequence. The Genesis author would reinforce the insight as we see the people build the Tower of Babel. The lust for life can be an expression of a rampant egotism, a desire for self-aggrandizement, which takes takes no care for the rest of the world. Hard words but also ones that I think we deeply feel, this grasping. Grasping for even good things or blessing or knowledge, but grasping kind of beyond ourselves, beyond our humanness. And so Adam and Eve felt their painful vulnerability. In the Bible, this word, this naked, is, is used to describe someone who is stripped of protective clothing, naked in a sense of being without defenses, The man and the woman had acquired a new knowledge of their frailty in what was becoming an increasingly difficult world. How have you experienced in your own human story, in your own human community, this knowledge of your frailty? In a hard world. The good news is we don't need a season of Lent to go and kind of create our own frailty and just remind or starve ourselves until we remind ourselves, I am frail and I am broken. We just actually have to kind of live life and it often shows up at our door. And so we're reminded of this. We feel the nakedness. We feel the vulnerability. We feel this maybe even craftiness within us. And so what do we do with it? Then the Lord was among, but then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? God's a question that echoes throughout all of scripture and to our hearts today. And he heard the sound in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Again, Marty Solomon puts it this way. We have we have become ashamed of how we have become ashamed of how God maybe created us. We feel the vulnerability, we feel the frailty, we misstep in our desires, we see our nakedness, and these other voices begin to tell us who we are. Tell us that we're not enough, we don't have enough. They just point to it. They increase the shame. And so the whole passage centers around this idea, what other voices have you been listening to? My friends, what voices have authority in your life? 
What stories have the greatest authority of defining who you are? As we journey into Lent, this whole story is about what it means to be human, to be fully human, not some crafty beast, but to know the delight, and part of being human is to know the delight of enough. Of no, when we get to that point of we are enough, because we are created in an image of God who actually holds kind of restraint, enoughness at times. Though he, God is bountiful, this is a God that creates in six days and then says, you know what, I'm done, I'm gonna cease, and I'm gonna give a day for rest. This has been enough. I don't know about you, but I try to create my kingdom in six days, and I'm like, I need about like a billion more, because it's just never enough, and if I don't cease, I don't know who I am. But to be created in the image of God is to understand that we can say this is enough, we can rest, we can cease. God is saying, I need you to know how to say enough. I need you to trust that you have enough, that you have been placed in this garden of the light. You have enough. You are enough. Will you continue to listen to the voices of shame as your authority or to the voice of God calling out, where are you? So to be human is to realize that we are enough, we have enough, we don't have to keep grasping and building for more. And to be human, my friends, this doesn't clean it up pretty, but it's to be on a journey. Was it possible for this story to go any other way? I don't know. Is this how God set it all up? Or was this plan B? We don't ever truly know. For some of the women that are on the women's retreat and um, got to hear the beautiful teaching from our friend Tara Owen, she talked about what if, what if this movement out of Eden was more of a birth from a wound versus a banishing from this place? This, this is part of the story, part of our movement into the journey in which we are being called. 